When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Project Dublin Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we're talking upland bird taxidermy and Arizona quail hunting with Tony White. Thanks for tuning in for episode number podcast is presented by onyx hunt creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters use the promo code pup20 to save 20 percent on your onyx hunt subscription download the onyx hunt app from the itunes or google play store today know where you stand with onyx and by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. If you want to get the most out of your dog, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. To help unleash your dog's maximum potential, check out the new Yukonuba Premium Performance lineup at yukonubasportingdog.com. 
and by CZ USA. Shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-sides to the Upland Ultralight, Wing Shooter Elite over and unders, and the soon-to-be Project Upland CZ USA crowdsource shotgun. They've got pumps, they've got semi-autos. CZ USA has a shotgun for you. Learn more and find your next bird hunting shotgun at cz-usa.com. And by Electronic Shooters Protection. Custom molded, custom fit, hearing protection that lets you hear everything you want to hear in the field, blocks out everything that you don't. Learn more and get yourself a pair at ESPAmerica.com. And by Sage and Breaker, makers of gun cleaning products that protect legacies. The legacy of your firearm, the legacy of the sport, and the legacy of passing both down to future generations. Sage and Breaker lives, breathes, and makes everything at the highest caliber possible, and they are proud to pass that caliber of craftsmanship on to you. Learn more at sageandbreaker.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels. Unparalleled protection, one-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Learn more about the kennels and all of their products by visiting dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway, Josh W. Josh left us a review in the iTunes podcast app. Thank you, Josh. Project Upland t-shirt headed your way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review in the podcast app. Subscribe to the podcast. Share an episode. or Send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We'd love to hear from our listeners. You can email me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, another reminder for a limited time, big discount from one of our regular partners on the podcast, Gumleaf USA. You can save 25% on any pair of available in-stock boots on the website right now. All you have to do is use the promo code HARTLEY, that's H-A-R-T-L-E-Y, HARTLEY, to save 25% on any pair of in-stock available boots at gumleafusa.com. And that promo code is valid through the month of February. All right, on this episode of the show, we are traveling to Arizona to speak with Tony White, Upland Bird Taxidermist, Quail Hunter, comes from a long line of quail hunting history and quail conservation, which you'll hear a little bit more about today. We check in with Tony on some of the do's and don'ts of Upland Bird Taxidermy, how to take care of your birds if you are interested in having some taxidermy work done. We get a little recap on Tony's Upland Bird season, talk about Arizona quail hunting, his bird dogs, and a bunch of other stuff. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast of white-winged artistry, taxidermist Tony White. All right, man, let's go. Welcome to the Project Up Podcast. Tony, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. We are talking to Tony White, a taxidermist, also an up-and-coming orthopedic surgeon. Is that how you would say it? (laughs) That too, yep. (laughs) And an upland bird hunter. And an upland bird hunter, yep, for life. Yeah, for life. I like that, man. We're we're definitely going to start with some of that upland hunting history, family history a little bit, some of the stuff you sent me, but first... I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a little bit about where uh, where you call home and kind of the things that keep you busy. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Missouri. Um, my uh, my father is a uh, Bob White quail biologist for Missouri Department of Conservation, uh, but my, I'm I'm the only one in my family that didn't live in Nebraska, and we have a bunch of family back in Nebraska, so that's where I chose to go to college okay. and uh, medical school, and um, spent my early childhood sitting in the deer stand like real early childhood sitting in the deer stand with dad and when I could 
walk through the tall grass, you know, go kick up pheasants and, and, uh, help them find some quail. And then finally got my own shotgun and, and started hunting when I was eight, I think. Um, and, uh, hunted throughout high school, mostly quail in Missouri. And then, uh, when I moved to Nebraska, it was, I focused more on pheasants. Then after medical school, I moved to Arizona for residency and that's where I am now. I live on the outskirts of Phoenix, trying to stay as far away from the big city as I can, but unfortunately <laughs> have to be within 30 minutes of the hospital if something sure. happens. So that's where I am currently. And since, um, since we've been here, I've been here for three years and um, have really been obsessively focused on figuring out the Mern's quail. Yeah. I think between between me and and the dog, I think we both kind of together have gotten them figured out pretty well. Uh, but there's they're they're always surprising us. So that's that's how we spend our our, our winter months, and then we kind of hole up indoors in the summer when it's 120 degrees for 55 days straight. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the numbers. It was like 110 days over 100 degrees, and uh, in last year. Yeah. This yeah, yeah. this past summer is the never-ending wow. summer. So yeah. um, we are always itching to get back outdoors, and we luckily Arizona's got a lot of uh, diverse landscapes. So you can in the summer you can get away to the mountains, make it a little bit cooler. Um, but yep. we've got two young kids, one who's about to turn three next week, and then one that's eight months old oh, cool. so um we we try to get them out and camp as much as possible when we're not both working or doing other things yeah awesome yeah when you we're going to talk a little bit about arizona hunting but i thought of something when you relocated to arizona was that obviously you were already a hunter so you started looking at opportunities were you kind of on your own did you have any contacts or connections down there to get out into the uplands or has it just been a one big whole learning experience so we came down here, um, my, my dad, my brother and I, and hunted Gamble's quail in 2010. Okay. Uh, or 11 when I, after I graduated high school. Um, and so my dad in the, the quail industry and now my brother in the quail industry, they have several contacts kind of throughout the country. So sure. they hooked, they hooked me up with some people and, uh, kind of showed showed me the way a little bit and then you know met other people through them and and uh so i wasn't alone okay got it yeah i just believe it or not was on a conference call this morning with a couple of my friends at pheasants forever and i mentioned that i was going to be interviewing you later and of course they were able to connect the dots and your your brother's a quill forever biologist correct yeah yeah that's correct he's uh he's out of missouri as well so um yeah yeah, you guys have quite the quite the family history when it comes to quail, and I think it was the Field and Stream article that you sent me. They went as far as calling you the first family of quail. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I fit into that. I'm I'm the youngest, so I kind of you know inherited that. But yeah, uh, yeah. Um, my dad, he'll never. I'll brag on him a little bit because he'll never brag on himself. Sure. But um, they used to call him, you know, when I was growing up, they'd call him Doctor Quail and. And anywhere I'd go, it'd be like, oh, you're Bill White's boy. Yeah, my name's Tony. Yeah, Bill White's boy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, he uh, he's kind of helped develop a lot of uh, government programs to help bring back Bob Whites in the Midwest. Yeah. They're really struggling, struggling with um, uh, modern farming practices. So that has been a success story. And 
a lot of other states have adopted similar programs uh, to what they've developed. So, yeah. How much do you know about your dad's, like how he found his way into bird hunting and quail? I mean, is there, your do you have a grandfather involved? How much do you know about that? Yeah. So um, my grandfather lived in uh, southeast Nebraska, and he was a farmer. He had several hundred acres, maybe even between all the farms, a, a couple thousand. Um, and back in those days, you know, they didn't farm fence row to fence row. They didn't farm all the way to the roadside. Yeah. Uh, they let yep. the weeds grow up. And so the quail and the pheasants had a lot, you know, you could, my dad always talks about walking down fence rows when he was a kid uh, without a dog and, and shooting a limit of pheasants and quail. Yeah, almost daily. So, and my even my grandma would be kind of uh, the bird dog for her dad, um, and carry you know as many pheasants as she could carry back sure. to the car. Um, so, it, that's how he got his start. And then he um, went to work for Nebraska uh, Game and Fish. Uh, I think it's Nebraska Game and Fish. I may be confusing him with Arizona, but um, and uh, he you know started out as basically a ditch digger clearing fence rows and stuff like that and then kind of worked his way up and then took the job in Missouri in in private lands uh wildlife biology and then kind of focused that into quail yeah so but early early adoption to the outdoors and hunting for him and he really never looked back exactly yep now he's kind of in the sense dedicated his life to quail and quail conservation dream job if you ask me yeah yep yeah yeah, that's very cool. And your brother straight straight into kind of the same thing and found his way into Quill Forever? Yep, it's something he always wanted to do, and it's actually something I always wanted to do as well. Um, my brother went to uh, college and got a degree in wildlife biology and then went directly to work for uh, Quill Forever, and he's been with them for several years now. Yeah. Um, and I, I had always wanted to do the same thing, but... Um, the the politics and the government and the the less and less focus on conservation as kind of the years went by when I was deciding what I wanted to go to college for and what I wanted to do kind of led me down a different path uh, but still stay as connected as possible. Yeah. And then there was the obvious need that your family was in need of a taxidermist, so they they kind yeah. of pushed you into that role, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that all started um <laughs> I think it was the the year I graduated college. We went to South Dakota, and I, you know, I'd shot pheasants before. We'd go up to Nebraska all the time, and we had a few pheasants in Nebraska. Um, but I wanted to save a bird from that trip. It was a graduation gift, and so I took it to one of the local taxidermists and uh, asked her if I could watch and figure out how she did it because I was super interested. And cool. in the back of my mind, I knew I would save myself a lot of money in the future if I could figure out how to do it myself. Yep. And uh, that's what started that off. Yeah. When you, like growing up, was taxiderm, did you have mounts around the house that you were always interested in or where did the, was it just a natural kind of association with hunting? Yeah, we yeah. Ne- we didn't have any taxiderm. My dad's pretty old school, so, you know, he ate everything he shot yeah. and, yep. um, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of money left over for decorations and mounts and all that stuff. Yep. And, uh, but I, I, I think the, the bug really lit in me about saving that bird, you know, a pheasant from South Dakota. And, uh, and then that kind of started it all. Yeah. So the, so that, that original taxidermist gave you a chance to go in there and 
watcher and what what was that like i mean did you just immediately connect with it and want to start tinkering yeah oh yeah absolutely so um that developed and so you know i i uh kind of quote unquote helped her mount that pheasant and uh um that started you know hey I've, i've got these quail can i can i come by and see how you do these and um you know, she then you know I'd start bringing more and more birds, and she's like, "Okay, why don't you why don't you do these by yourself?" And then I'll kind of come over and yeah, see how you're you doing a, and make an apprentice out of you. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. And you know, it takes a lot of tools and money to get started up and have somewhere to do it. I was living in college; I didn't really have a place to do it. Um, so uh, that was a huge help and kind of get me started on where I was going. Yeah. Cool. Well, I want to, I think we'll dive into taxidermy a little bit just so we're not jumping all over the place. But uh, as you and I were talking, I, you had asked about taxidermists on the show and we hadn't had one on for a long time and it was something that I wanted to do. And then I think it was last summer I had uh, Michael Pepe on from Jonas Brothers Taxidermy and we, we covered some of this stuff, but I was eager to have you on and get another taxidermist perspective, talk about things in a little different way. And, and of course, talk about all the other stuff that we went over like Arizona quail hunting and, and some oh, other yeah. things, but bring me into taxidermy a little bit further now in your development. So you've, you've got interested in it. You kind of basically had an apprenticeship. Was there a taxidermy school involved or is this a, is this a do it yourself kind of thing? This was all a do it yourself. Okay. And, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of birds that have been tossed in the trash, uh, <laughs> since then. Yeah. Um, but no, no taxidermy school is all kind of hands-on learning and and a lot of help and and the taxidermy taxidermy community nowadays is yep. is especially with social media you're able to ask questions yep. and and people are a little bit more willing little bit more willing to share some of their tips and secrets uh, to kind of help you along so everybody kind of helps each other. I would imagine like many areas there are access to information is easier now than ever oh, right yeah. so there's when it and especially when it comes to like a hands-on trade something like that you've got videos you've probably got podcasts that are probably taxidermy podcasts i don't even know never looked but you've got all kinds of resources to look into uh how you might go about doing this stuff and then like you said asking questions to people that are doing it is is a big help so let's yeah let me ask you this because my my understanding of taxidermy basically is I see a bird on the wall. I understand that some process occurred to put it there and preserve it. But could you walk me through the high level? What You get a bird, and we'll talk about some of the packaging and that kind of stuff, like sending it to the taxidermist. I want to go over that stuff. But let's go through the process, of the very simple process of taking a bird from a killed specimen in the field to putting it up on the wall. What does it look like? Yeah, so um, like you said, we'll talk about packaging a bird. That's probably the most important part, but we'll yeah. start with a frozen bird. Um, never want to leave a bird warm after it's dead because even if it's after it's frozen, the bacteria are always working. So um, sure. I'll, I'll thaw out a bird from the freezer um, for a few hours, uh, skin it, get all the meat out. The only thing left um, after that process is the wing and leg bones, um, and the, the skin and feathers, all the meat, um, everything else, the head, the bill or beak, uh, that's all taken out. And then, um, I'll even take out the, the legs and do them separately as well. So I can paint without getting it off the feather on the feathers. Um, and then 
run it under a uh, a, a wire wire brush wheel um, to to kind of liquefy the fat off of it, especially on ducks and geese and uh, waterfowl. Not so much on upland, but um, and uh, give it a good wash. People are always worried about you know ruffling feathers and stuff when they when they bring it in, but if they could see what we do to it in the process, they yeah. So washing it, um, degreasing it, and then blow drying it taking measurements off the body off the head painting the bill or the beak and the feet and then um, uh, using a, a pre-made foam I use most people nowadays use pre-made foam bodies that had been hand carved by yeah. uh, taxidermists that studied anatomy but back in the day they used to wrap their bodies or hand carve them out each one out of foam and then you kind of put it all together wires and um, a lot of caulking and a lot of time with tweezers moving feathers around. I want to break that down a little bit. And some of this, I think, could definitely translate to, I know there's a lot of, again, talking about more and more resources and people talking about upland bird hunting and cooking upland birds. And I know that me as a chef, you know, there's a lot to be desired. Like I am very simple in my methods, and that's just stuff that I have. And But I see these delicious preparations of game birds and a lot of them start with plucking and i i dabbled with that a little bit this year and you know i inevitably ripped the skin and i think you were kind of getting at it like when you don't have a fully full understanding of like what's possible or what's capable like you rip a skin and you just figure ah forget it you know it's over with when that really might not necessarily be the case like if somebody ruffles a feather or messes something up like you being a skilled taxidermist you can correct some of those things and i think sometimes that's where the novice gets lost but yeah how do you how do you go about skinning a game bird because my first thought is the skin is so thin like it's going to cut tear how do you even do it so um i i do it while they're still maybe a third of the way frozen okay um you know just so temperature can help temperature can help um kind of keeps the skin a little bit less less pliable and prone mm-hmm. to rip um on on waterfowl there's a there's a split in the breast feathers that goes all the way down um that you can kind of part the feathers and find the line and then just kind of go that way um it some birds like uh when they used to use or most people some people still use real heads on everything but most people use uh um uh, manufactured heads now, but trying to pull the head out of a uh, through the neck of a pheasant. Or sometimes I actually ripped the the entire head and neck off a pheasant I was mounting for somebody. But you learn you learn um, ways to fix those errors after several. I mean, every bird's got its issues, and so you're always yeah. fixing something. But um, yeah, just I, I go slow. Uh, I've seen people. Sure. Uh, skin a bird in eight minutes. It takes me about forty-five because I'm okay. I'm a little, little obsessed with well, that's a pretty the perfect one intricate process. I mean, that's not a not a one to two minute deal. Then exactly, yep. yeah. It's not a not okay. a field dressing. I mean, you're you're of course you have the end goal in mind of having this thing be as nice as possible. But yeah. I, I couldn't even I w- couldn't even imagine trying to get the skin with feathers on it off of the head of like a quail. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and that, and that that's where it's tough. You know, their their head doesn't match the the size of the tube in their neck. And uh, quail is something I do use the real head on quail and small okay. uh, upland birds. But uh, it's it's always terrifying because they quail and especially woodcock and uh, doves and these smaller uh, birds 
with really thin skin is kind of like wet tissue paper. They rip and they 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 lose feathers super easily. So it's yep. you gotta you got you have to work quick with them because they will lose feathers. Um, with it, the longer you sit there and let them heat up, but then you also have to be extremely delicate. So it takes a lot of practice for sure. So here's a dumb question: If you keep the head of a quail. Is the beak then the actual bird's beak? I mean, is that something that sticks with it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, if you're keeping, if you're so, I have kept real heads on ducks, on like hybrid ducks that you know they they don't match any any manufactured heads. So everything everything but the bone and the bill or the beak stays. If you're keeping the real head, you take out the eyes, take out the brain, take out the uh, just like you were doing a euro mount on a deer, basically. Sure. Um, yep. Take out all the meat, anything that could rot or attract bugs. Right. Um, or, or leach um, oil or blood or anything that can get on the feathers. So that's that'll ruin them out quickly. So the bill and beak can ultimately be preserved. What's the preservation process on that? So on on upland birds with beaks, yep. um, they're hard. They're uh, you know they're made of keratin like fingernails, so they they'll pre- they'll preserve fine. You Pretty don't have easy. to do anything with them, yeah. But yep. on a on waterfowl that have more fleshy bills, um, you have to use like a fungicidal sealer and and paint them repetitively in formaldehyde oh, um, okay. to get them to not shrink and you know kind of preserve them. That when you mentioned woodcock, that's what got me thinking about the bill of a duck or woodcock. This this yeah. more soft things that would seem to be preserved as opposed to a hard beak like a grouse or a quail yeah exactly there's 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 a there's a process to that i still haven't mastered but yeah um one of the other things you mentioned this wire brush which i'm i think i know what it is it's like it's a spinning spinning wheel brush right exactly that's a pretty is that a like a taxidermy specific tool something very common every taxidermist has it yeah, um, at least every bird tax. Well, and deer taxidermists have their own form. It's more of a spinning blade that they take the 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 fat and the the real thick dermis off of the skin of a deer or or any mammal. Um, but it's basically the same thing for for birds. Um, uh, most people build their own to get it to their exact specifications oh. on RPMs and um, the the stiffness of the bristles on the brush. Um, you can buy pre-made ones, but they tend to be a little either too weak or too heavy handed. And that's a, you know, imagine getting a bird skin ripped up in that and having holes everywhere. Sure. So, yep. yeah. The, my questioning on that is pretty specific because I believe one thing that's very common in rough grouse hunters is a lot of folks will save the tails and I'm, I'm, you know, there are other, other things where I'm sure other birds, you have certain things that you sell, but a rough grouse tail is kind of like, you know, that's a, that's a trophy for many folks. And I started to save some and I'll pin them and dry them and use borax. I see a box of borax behind you there. I, I imagine yeah. uh, that's <laughs> pretty common to have in, the, oh, yeah. in your garage. Um, but I think I saw at one point a taxidermist using one of those spinning brushes to take like the excess fat off right at the base of the rough grouse tail. And that's something that just very amateurly, I've just tried to kind of carve away as much of the meat that I can, and then I just use borax to dry the rest of it. But could I go out and cheaply purchase a brush that might be able to make that job easier for me, I guess is my question. You could, but you could also, so if you're just saving like a turkey fan or a rough grouse fan or a pheasant tail, um, 
you you can find you know the edges of the the main tail feather quills and you know any of the the saddle feathers that are just above that yeah. um, that you want to save um, and kind of just carve out meat with a knife uh, meat and and a little bit of fat and the the connective tissue between the the quills make it easier to pose and, and pin in place yeah so I, I I don't think it would be worth it for to to go out and buy one or or get the get the stuff to make one just um, doing that. You could, yeah. Okay. And and the reason I say that some people may disagree is we're trying to get everything possible off of these birds because if a bug or a rat or something gets in there they're going to eat the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas I have had mice chew chew the ends of like a turkey fan or something. They're just interested in the meat. But right. um you know, you've got the wings that you don't always get all of the the uh, meat out of and and the head and and you're worried about more the whole the whole bird got um, it that's why we get so obsessed with that yeah so really just the garage method of just taking off what you can and then using borax to dry it out is probably exactly good. and and i, I still mean, do my turkey turkeys and and grouse same and way. pheasant tails the exact same way yeah, okay. just with a knife all right yeah i did do my turkey the you know the turkey one being such a big big fan that worked out pretty well and that one's yeah i like i like pinning those out and drying them out and yeah nice nice keepsake for sure oh yeah how long have you been doing taxidermy and where are you at in your journey like how, how do you feel about your skills and your confidence oh boy so there's <laughs> so like, like i mentioned before every bird has its issues you can yep. shoot what you think is the absolute perfect bird and it's going to throw you for a loop it may have perfect feathers and perfect skin no holes no rot nothing and then it just does not want to cooperate. The feathers want to curl or, you know, everything. So there's always, I learn something on every single bird I do. I don't, I'll never be the best I yeah. can be um, until I mount my last bird probably. Yeah. Um, and there's always some something new that somebody figures out that they're willing to share that completely changes the game of something you struggle with forever um, that you could have never thought of a solution to and somebody has it. So... I there are there are a lot of really really good bird taxidermists and yeah. there are um so many people that I don't even know about they don't have social media they 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 just you know they're just they stay local and and maybe they compete in some taxidermy competitions and win some stuff but there are some really good people out there that are just aren't well known because they're not they don't put themselves out there so my skills I I that's a great question. I I feel like I've come a long way. Yeah, definitely come a really long way. I mean, it takes hundreds of birds probably. Yeah, to get to, um, to get to a point where you're happy with, you know, you can let you can keep a bird forever and be happy with it. Um, but like I say, there's always something to learn and yeah. And uh, well, it's it's a lifelong pursuit for a lot of folks. So yeah, I certainly don't mean to suggest that. Yeah, you've you don't reach the the pinnacle and it's like you said it's a lifelong continual improvement i i find it interesting you mentioned that somebody will figure something out does that like maybe you have an example of that does it have to do with like a material or a tool or a method what what might something like that be that somebody discovers all of the above so um so, for instance, you know, everybody's worried about, you know, they bring in a bird and they're like, oh, I don't know if, if I can do it flying because it's got a broken wing. Well, if there's if there's not feathers missing or, you know, the the primary 
uh, flight feathers aren't shot out, then it'll be fine. Yep. And, you know, somebody will, I'm in a lot of taxidermy groups and sharing information and stuff, and people will, you know, find a find a way to stick a wood dowel in for a wing bone that's completely shattered or um, use a, uh, a common household chemical to uh, loosen the skin on a really, really freezer burnt freezer burnt bird or, or mm. one that's been skinned and salted in a different country and sent over here those are always really tough they're not like fresh skin whatsoever even if you rehydrate them yep. so you know people mentioning stuff like that just kind of off the cuff that they use i'm always kind of sitting there taking notes and sure and yep. wanting to try stuff like that well i think even the mention of i would have had no idea like how many birds you would have done but I mean, hundreds, literally hundreds you've, you've cut open and, and fiddled with. I mean, that's, that's a lot of birds and I'm, I know others have done way more than that. I'm sure. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I've been doing it for over 10 years. Okay. Um, and you know, starting out, I was just doing my own birds and birds yeah. for buddies and, yeah. um, and then, uh, there's such we I kind of mentioned this when I was talking to you that there's such and I think social media has something to do with it I think all these like slam challenges Arizona slam the North American Upland slam the mm-hmm. ultimate waterfowlers challenge you know they people spend so much money to go out and hunt these birds that they can't just go out their back door and shoot and a lot of them want to keep that so yeah. the taxidermy industry is booming and uh, you open your doors and they'll come beat it down that's for sure interesting all right, well, let's talk about some of the things that I think really apply to the listener, and that is sort of taking the bird from the field to you, the taxidermist, which is something we did talk about in our previous episode, but again, to kind of rehash that and and remind folks of like what the proper care is in the field. So walk me through that. Absolutely. So I think I think most people understand just general the general idea of taking care of a bird don't throw it in the bottom of the pile don't let your dog pull feathers out don't um you know just leave it out in the back of your truck for a couple days before you put it in the freezer but the 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 real finer points is where it really makes a difference those those are the types of birds where you know turn them away at the door and say this is not i can't make this look like you you would want it to look so i'm sorry but you're gonna have to bring me a different one now the 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 finer points like i said are what mattered so First thing, you shoot a bird, was there a big puff of feathers when you shot it? If there was, maybe try to shoot another one. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times that's that's more downy feathers that are coming out than actual important textured and, and colored feathers, But and it still may be okay. Uh, and then here in Arizona especially where you just got dirt and rocks, if you're shooting a quail and it hits the ground, is there a big trail of feathers behind it where it just skinned, basically skinned itself? Probably want to shoot a different one the uh then if if you've got one that that looks you look it over look at the wings look at the the back the breast the the side pockets where they tuck their wings in the longer feathers on the side the tail um and probably most importantly the head and neck because those those little tiny micro feathers don't hide damage well so if you've if you've got a bunch of shot holes in the neck or head it's it's still doable but if if you can consider shooting another one yeah. uh so look it over, take care of it like it's a baby. I mean, put it put it on the side. Put it If you're hunting waterfowl, put it in your blind bag or on top of it. Um, don't let it get mixed up with the birds that you're going to clean and uh, keep it away from the dog. And then what I do with quail especially, the, uh, the gallinaceous birds, 
birds like chickens, like yep. I said, have really skin uh, or really thin skin, so they are more prone to losing feathers with heat and bacteria. So I in Arizona, I carry. I'm hunting in 70, 75 degree weather, so I carry um, a, a cooler in my vest with some ice packs, and I get the bird in a plastic bag so you know it doesn't get all roughed up walking yeah. around the rest of the day, and it'll keep it cool. A lot of issues we run into, even with pheasants coming out of the Midwest, is people put them in their vest and walk around with them all day. Well, your body heat is is keeping that metabolism going, and it it it, it can mess them up pretty quickly. Something th- people don't don't think about at all. Yeah. And then when you get home, get it. Uh, what I do, and I tell everybody, is to to wrap the the feet and the head in a wet paper towel. That'll preserve. That'll keep the, those are the first things to freezer burn. And the feet are important because if they freeze or burn too badly, you can't, they're not pliable. You can't get them to, to do what you want. Um, and then the head, it's, it's those feathers, like I said, they're really small and delicate. And if the skin isn't perfect there, then they're, it's really hard to groom and make look uh, acceptable. So wrap the, the, the head and the feet and in uh, so wet paper towels. Paper towel, put it under the faucet, wring it out. And then wrap it, wrap the bird or the head and the feet. Yep. At this point, you're you're trying to keep the bird as dry as possible because any yeah. like you like you know any moisture can you know sure. increase yeah. the bacteria. So um, you, you, it's okay to get them a little bit wet from that at this point. And then yeah. m- this is extremely important. There's a lot of old wives' tales that are still running around. People are doing what their dads and grandpas did. Put it in a Ziploc bag <laughs> if it's a if it's a big mallard or a goose go get a two gallon ziploc bag the issues we run into after field care um is how they were stored so some people just put them in the freezer just bare nothing nothing covering them um walmart bags trash bags and the killer is the pantyhose uh i don't know i don't know I've who had started that one that. suggested yeah and so that one but if, that one makes sense at least does. the way that it was pitched to me was you put a you put a pantyhose in your bird vest so that when you're in the field you kill the bird and you slide the bird in that you want to mount this bird so you slide it in the pantyhose and like logically you're just like oh yeah that's going to hold all the feathers down keep it in place you know that's how logically it's yes the the thought the thought behind that is a, a really good thought right it comes from a good place but you know, some people are kind of haphazard in how they're putting it in there, and then you yeah. get these big tracks of feathers that are are bent and crooked. And um, if you if you bend or break a the quill of a feather, you, you can't get it to groom back. And we're talking about like, you know, you're, you're sliding it in that, and the breast feathers get pulled up and then bent, and then you're just walking around all day with it in your vest like that, and they're just getting right. destroyed. So if you um, get, you the, get it in there the wrong way, then there's no going back. Basically, exactly. The other issue with that is people people think that's adequate for for just putting them in the freezer like that but there's you know that's breathable material yeah exactly that's the killer so um ziploc bags freezer bags are are the best bet some people if you want to be extra careful double bag them they can last in the freezer with their head and feet wrapped and in freezer bags for i've had birds for five six seven years that come out fine just fine um Yeah, so especially if you're not planning to go to the taxidermist the next day, taking really good care of how you put it in the freezer is yeah. important. Um, one other quick thing is 
laying the head over the back. Some people tuck it under the wing and that's fine, mm-hmm. but it can mess up the primary flight feathers if you want a flying mount and try not to freeze it with its, you know, its head and neck sticking straight out cuz inevitably if some you're going to put something on top of it or it's going to fall out of a stand-up freezer and it, it, that'll snap right that's off. That's brittle. Yeah. Okay. Brittle. Yep. Okay. So so fold the head over the back would be the preferred method of storage there. Yeah. So wings they're going to want to tuck naturally so wings tuck you're trying to make basically make a football right yeah basically yeah a little compact something you know if it falls out of the freezer it's not going to hurt it at all and it'll kind of the the insulation keep keeping the head you know closer to the body and yeah. uh, everything kind of tucked in like you mentioned like a football uh kind of keeps it thermally protected from losing moisture one of the other things you mentioned, which I think was a don't, was newspaper. Is that just one of those old kind of things, rapid newspaper? Yeah, newspaper, um, butcher paper. That's Paper leaches moisture out, so it's going to freeze or burn twice as fast than that. And then also newspaper, if you if you have white feathers or, or light gray feathers, um, it newspaper does transfer ink sure. uh, onto yeah. those feathers, and it doesn't come out. Yeah, yeah that wouldn't be good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you you talked about a broken wing and that being because I actually had a well, you see this grouse fan up behind me here. Yeah, I think I brought this up in a previous episode. It, I'm still kicking myself for not mounting the bird. I, I is that a red one? Um, it's actually this is one of the more. Oh, I'm gonna. I don't want to ruin it here. It's one of the more unique fans that I've ever found. It. Oh, wow. I think you would call this really like a mix. Like it's it's half red phase and half gray phase but then it has a copper band and of course the listeners can't see this but yeah i've shared a picture of it before but it was a big it was a big (laughs) male bird and the bird was honestly i'm like this thing was pristine there was nothing Uh. wrong with it it did have a broken wing but i knew at the time that that broken wing was not gonna be the deal breaker and I, i actually messaged a taxidermist and she was like not a big deal at all. As long as the feathers yeah. aren't gone, I can totally fix that. And I just, I don't know. I, I don't have any, other than deer antlers, I don't have any taxidermy. And I just, I don't know. I, I, should, have, I should have that one. <laughs> it's a disease. Once you get started, yeah. every bird, every bird you shoot is going to be, oh, is this one? Yeah. I'm we'll still trying to cure the incurable disease of shotguns. So. Yeah, maybe well, that's I'm, what's I'm, preventing me from diving into taxidermy <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah, save your money. Yeah, yeah. No, but so broken wing. Are there any other things that if you pick a bird up in the field? I mean, some of the stuff is pretty obvious. You know, if it if there's a ton of feathers missing, the dog grabs it and takes a chunk out of it. It's really shot up. Any other thing that we kind of missed there, or is that pretty common sense? Like, nah, this isn't a good one. A lot of it's com- like the obvious ones are common sense, yeah. but things that people don't pay attention to are like on the smaller upland game birds uh they they if they hit hit the hard ground yeah. and they skin a patch of feathers what i tell people is if it's missing a patch of feathers it's still doable it's hard to hide you might have one good side to show sure. and then the other side goes against the wall still doable um if it's um if the if the dog retrieves it and there's not a bunch of feathers in its mouth afterward it's probably fine the slobber and the the roughed up feathers those those are fine we wash all that out and yeah. they get completely rearranged so um as long as it's not missing feathers or really badly shot up feathers like you shot the wing off basically right. but if if that's the case if you get a bird like you know a, a really interestingly colored bird like your grouse and then um you can 
you can go out and shoot another bird for parts, or you you, you shot right. two or three birds, and and none of them are really that good. We we Frankenstein a lot of birds together, and especially <laughs> especially quail. Put you know putting new backs on them, putting new wings on them, putting new uh, flank feathers on them. Uh, so it, that's easy to do, and 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 hmm. better if you can shoot more than one. Yeah. If somebody wanted to, if they have a bird, could they take pictures and send it to you? Would that be helpful, or does that not tell enough of the story typically? Yeah, absolutely. I get I get that all the time. I would imagine. Um, yeah, all all the time. Um, so yeah, a lot of people, you know, especially mid early and mid season, will send me pictures and I'll say, wait a couple extra weeks or wait a month if you can, because most of the waterfowl. Um, and even upland birds don't don't um, get their mature feathers and, and molt their pin feathers, which are the yeah. blood feathers um, that fall out super easy uh, until uh, November or in the case of Mern's quail, like end of January. Right, it's gonna pet because they hatch so late. Yeah. Yep. So so um, picture pictures are always helpful if you have a, a, a taxidermist that you know. Um, or somebody that you can, you know, contact and say, hey, can I send you pictures of this bird and tell me what you think? Uh, definitely a, a good idea because it can save you a trip and it can save you some, some, you know, extra work if it's just not worth it. Or maybe yep. you weren't, maybe you, you didn't think it was worth it, but it ends up being something really good. So Yeah. Okay. And then you kind of roped in there something that we had talked about being the timing of grabbing a bird and so yeah. what, I, what i gathered from your response there was generally speaking the later in the season the better your chances are of having a good specimen absolutely so in the southwest the the breeding season of waterfowl and the nesting season is probably a, i i don't know i'm not a biologist but i would guess probably a month or even more earlier than the rest of the the uh, country so we get really really good mature uh, fully plumed birds in early. So it's not as big of a deal here, okay. but, um, Northern places, Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, your, your seasons are so early. Um, yeah. and with, they, they breed so late that it's tough to get a really, really prime specimen of something. But, um, the later in the season you can go, if you're going for a, a trophy bird, if you're going to hunt Mern's quail or something, you want it just, you know, specifically to mount, not, you know, there's other, uh, many other reasons to hunt, but if you're wanting yeah. to save one, yeah. um, it's, wait until closer to end of season to save one. It's, it's, it'll make for a better looking mountain, a, a lot cleaner mountain if they're not losing a lot of those immature feathers. Yeah. Cool. All right. How about choosing a taxidermist other than sending all the listeners to you, Tony White, <laughs> what, what should folks be looking for? And I, I have a feeling you probably would comment on this. Is there benefit to fo- to looking locally first so yes um there is always benefit to looking locally like i mentioned there there are people out there that are phenomenal taxidermists that you know just haven't ever put their name out there what i always tell people is do your homework don't just look up on google and see taxidermists and take it there and not even ask to see um you know their work or you know pick have them send you pictures or look on their website or facebook um do your homework because you're you spend all the money if you're going on a destination trip you spend all the money to do that you're spending the money to get the bird mounted and i can't tell you how many times i see people saying well this is the bird i brought and this is what i got back and it looks horrendous Mm. it's people not doing their homework most 
I would say a, lo- a lot of people that don't know the bird anatomy very well can't pick out the finer details, but make sure that what you're looking at you would be happy with for the rest of your life, basically, yeah. as long as you yeah. take care of it. Don't be afraid. If, if you don't find anything local, almost every taxidermist takes shipped birds. Yeah. You can ship them overnight or second-day air, and they'd be fine. Um, and there, like I say, there are a lot of taxidermists to be found out there. Um, and so I, I tell people, I, I still have people from Nebraska that, that mail me stuff. I have people from all, almost all over the country that, that, that mail me stuff. So yeah. it's definitely doable and don't be afraid to do it. Cool. Self-taxidermy. Folks that are actually interested, cause that's, I, I think you mentioned it getting more and more common. I see, I see friends that are fiddling with their own birds and starting their process of doing hundreds of them like you, Tony. What what are the resources, what are the methods that folks that have an interest in taxidermy, where should they go? So if you're doing it like I did to save yourself some money or if you just gen- genuinely have an interest in, yeah. in doing it for a profession, just save birds. Have your buddies save birds. Um, they don't have to be the best specimen. Ducks, get, get a variety of bird. Get diving ducks, get puddle ducks, get geese, get upland birds. Um, they're, they're all different. There's, you learn how to skin on 20 of them before you skin one. You're actually going to, yeah. you're going to make a lot of holes. You're going to cause a lot of issues and your, your practice, practice makes almost perfect in this game, like everything else. So the more you can practice, the better. And then I would say, if you're going to go to a taxidermy school or, or some, some taxidermists offer like little apprenticeships or, or week or two week classes, um, where you can really learn a lot. Definitely do the do do your homework on that end and and do a lot of practice beforehand so you're not going in there blind and you can get more out of it. You've seen these issues now. This is how to fix them. Or um, here's a little trick that you know you had that will help you with an, an issue that you came up with in your process. So there is a major insurgence of people that are trying self taxidermy, and I would just say don't get discouraged. Your first mount, actually my first mount. <laughs> My first mount actually turned out great. My second mount turned out horrendous. So it's okay. You're you're gonna lose. Um, that's why I say practice on your own birds and your buddies' birds. Things that you know you're not. Don't start taking money first. Right. Right. Get a lot of birds under your belt before you do that. But it's, you gotta it's get okay. your hands dirty. Yeah, and it's okay to throw a bird away. <laughs> like right. If, you're still you're you, still eating that bird or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's transition. Unless there's anything else you want to cover on taxidermy that we missed, I wanna I wanna pick your brain a little bit about quail hunting. Uh, taxidermy. Um, big points. Be good to your birds in the field. Yeah. Um, treat them like it was meat that you're gonna eat, basically. So keep them cool. Don't get them wet if you can, and uh, get them in the freezer as soon as possible. Don't be afraid to look in different parts of the country for taxidermists if you're not happy with what sure. you're seeing around there. Yep. And um, prices vary. Cheaper is not always better. Yeah, almost never better. But uh, if you're price shopping, you got to think about all the all of the money you spent to get that bird, your truck, your boat, your your yep. double barrel shotgun, your dog, and everything. And you're you want to save fifty bucks on a bird, and, and you may regret it. So just that's all I'll say. You know, one other thing I'm kind of curious about is you mentioning price makes me think about it. Like it's one thing for me to send you a bird and get that bird back let's say i want a flying mount like it's going to have some kind of a mount on it to put it on the wall right Mm -hmm. and 
that would be one price. But then the other price could be a bird with some kind of a display, like with some wood or something. Like, how does that, the elaborateness of the display, does that like change the project and the price and everything? <laughs> I mean, I know it's like unlimited, right? Like, you can oh, get yeah. as crazy as you want. But so most taxidermists have a base price for for a different bird. So, you know, average price for a duck is somewhere between 250 and $300. Okay. Um, of course, there are people that charge a lot more and, and are worth it. But uh, that usually comes with something to either attach it to a wall or something to sit it on a shelf or a table, whether it be just a simple wood base with a real simple habitat, some grass, some dirt, some rocks. Um, And then you can get into the major big displays with these foam sea rocks that are painted to, you know, look like real rocks and water and splashes and... Uh, snow and ice and lighting and I've the 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 biggest one I've heard and I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot bigger ones out there but the biggest one I've heard of on birds is seven grand and wow. only only two twenty five hundred of that was the birds that were actually in it the okay. rest of that's the you know the glass case the the yeah. the wood with the table and yeah all yeah. that cool do, do you like is that a discrepancy that some like do you do settings and scene i think i recall some from my conversation with michael is like he was trying to like he was working on some of that stuff but it's not necessarily that every taxidermist would do that yeah and and some some people don't i'd say most people most almost i would say everybody does will do a simple habitat if sure requested but you've got the major players that do the big like ocean sea duck scenes with the splashes and waves and crazy yeah. stuff. I if you're looking for something like that, seek somebody out that specializes in that. Sure. I I do I do some of that. I um but the the reality is most people don't splurge for that. Um they want the bird mounted and they just, you know, want to set it on a shelf or hang it on the wall and that's that's yeah. totally fine. Yeah. You get the crazy people that want a whole trophy room full of taxidermy and mm-hmm. all these different things and and so I, I do i do i do quite a bit of it um and most people do but if you're wanting the really really big stuff i would i would seek that out separately if sure. if your guy doesn't do it or, or even you know take your birds to to the guy that does do it yeah got it and then um you actually mentioned earlier i'm still kind of like scratching my head at like washing you wash these birds and wash the feathers but that got me thinking about taking care of our mounts once me the consumer brings it home how do we do that and and uh you can comment on like how the heck do you wash a skin and feathers of a game bird (laughs) yeah so i would recommend for the consumer not to do that okay Um, like i said we're trying to avoid water at all costs until we were right ready to put it in the freezer um and then water is your friend but the the one thing so one thing people are always worried about is blood on the feathers that all comes out the only the only issues you run into are um blood or brain matter that's that's freezer burnt to the feathers that does not come out that's how you take care of it in your packaging when you go to freeze it but washing a bird, so after you get it skinned and we call it fleshing, flesh all the fat off, yeah. um, the, the feathers are just covered in fat. So just simple Dawn dish soap and uh, a series of cold and warm baths and rinses and then um, some laundry detergent for a final like kind of feather shining. No way. Then, so you're, you're dunking it underwater? Like how rough are oh, you getting with it? Like I'm curious. 
So if a feather is going to come out, it's going to come out somewhere okay. in the process. So you okay. can be you you get pretty rough with it, and they look like drowned rats. And, and honestly, <laughs> to get the soap and the detergent and the fat out of the feathers, you kind of have to agitate. Sure. You have to agitate it. You have to get those feathers moving um, to to produce a clean mount. So that that process is several stages, and then um, basically keeping it right side out afterwards and not letting feathers touch the skin where there may be some residual oils or fat um, and then blow drying it and it magically looks like a bird again. Will it have a tendency to want to shrink up as as you're drying it or no? So not necessarily shrink up but uh, especially here in Arizona where the humidity is almost nothing. Um, I've got a humidifier running in here right now um, and it's only at 50%. The drying out of the skin is an issue, so okay. I always keep a, a just a spritzer bottle with water handy and just spritz the inside of the skin to keep it you know nice and pliable. Yeah. Otherwise, you run into issues getting feathers to cooperate and go where you want them to when, once they dry out. Yeah, they'll be stuck. Yeah, okay. Yep. Cool. And then um, at home, dusting, that kind of thing, like just ma- general upkeep, how do we keep them looking good? Yeah, so I put so much time into like I know what goes into it. So I when I do a mount for myself, which is extremely rare, I plan to put it in a glass case. Okay. okay. To keep the dust off Just it. Keep the that's dust not off of it. yeah, that's not realistic for most people. Mm-hmm. Um but if you've got, you know, flying birds or standing birds on a shelf, um a yearly dusting with a feather duster with the grain of the feathers, yeah. just very lightly. Um We'll we'll keep it looking nice, and if 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 you've had one that's been on the wall for several years and just hasn't had anything and has been neglected, most taxidermists will will let you bring it in and they'll show you how to kind of clean it up a little bit. Don't yeah. try anything crazy; um, that's how you mess it up. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just a simple light feather dust. Keep it out of the you know if you've got a, a window, south facing window that's got uh, direct sunlight. Keep it away from that. Yeah. Um, keep it from fading and. Um, almost nobody smokes anymore, but smoking, you know, like it coats everything that sure, smoke yep. will kind of ruin those feathers and turn them yellow. So, yeah. Yeah. I think we've all probably could conjure up an image in our mind of the, you know, the garage sale deer, oh, yeah. or whatever mount that's, <laughs> that looks terrible. And like, I don't know if that's neglect or bad taxidermy or both, you know, probably a combination <laughs> yeah, of probably, the two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's very good info on taxidermy. Like I said, I do want to catch up with you a little bit on Arizona quail hunting. Um, oh, yeah. What's the – is your season about to close? I mean, it's February we, 2nd I'm talking to you today. Yep. We go we, we go till Feb, we go till the first weekend in February, which is the 7th this year, so okay, Sunday. Okay, so you're coming up on it. Yeah. I had the day off from work today, and I chose to mount a bird, and I'm already kicking myself for it. But Oh, and now you're um, with me on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well – you're you're really the reason I stuck around home. Otherwise, I'd be out <laughs> shooting quail. Well, uh, the sun the sun probably doesn't set for a while. Can you still get out there? Oh yeah, I can still get out there. Yeah, I probably will. Um, but yeah, we we get a a really long season for the desert birds, and then just a a, a two month season on Merns, mostly because they uh, they nest later. They nest in July and August into September. Oh, excuse me, August into September, and uh, the even when you're shooting them in December, if if it's a good hatch year, they're all still really young and immature. Okay. So I know enough about – I've never hunted quail in Arizona, but my uncle lives down on the outskirts of Phoenix. He actually recently moved. He used to be in uh, Chandler. But I know that yeah, – that's where I live. Quail, is it? 
I was going to ask yeah. you that when you mentioned it yeah. earlier. He's um, so you I you've got Gamble's quail in your backyard. I'm guessing because he used to have quail running around his backyard yep. when I go down and visit him by the pool. Um, yep. but is that not the case for Merns? Like you'd have to travel to get into Merns a little bit. So yeah, so for for me yeah, it, if you live so southern Arizona, basically across the whole you know south of Tucson, any of the mountain ranges down there, the foothills of the mountains, um, anything with oaks. Um, and knee-high grass and yep. anywhere from 20 to 50% oak cover is basically going to have merns. Even in a bad year like this year, the coveys were smaller, but I still found um, all the coveys I found last year, I, I left them alone. But I every every time I went out this year, I went to a new place and found okay. new coveys. Yeah. There wasn't a time, there has actually never been a time, um, except for when I first started and didn't really know what I was looking for, that I've gone out and not found a covey. So I actually saw a hunter um, that came down from Wisconsin this past week, and I saw him out walking next to the huh. road and stopped and asked him how he's doing. He's like, "What do I, I don't know what I'm doing. I said, just <laughs> see those trees. Just walk under those trees. If you walk under those trees all day, you will find them. Cool. I was going to ask you about public land. There's a ton of public land in Arizona. I, From what I gather from talking to folks, it's essentially public land pursuit, quail hunting down there. Yeah, no, nothing that I'm used to. I used to have to work hard for my private yep. land spots in Nebraska. Um, but here, I mean, it's endless possibilities. Even yep. private land here, unless it's posted, no trespassing or hunting, you can hunt it. So that's as long the, as you're okay. eth- yep. Yeah, as long as you're ethical and respect the, 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 the landowner and his ground, right. um, you know, we can keep it that way. Have you had? Uh, have you run into landowners out there that have checked in and talked to you about quail hunting? I'm generally pretty friendly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. For the most yeah. part, yeah. yeah. Like I say, as long as you steer clear, we have a law. It's a quarter. You can't shoot within a quarter mile of a dwelling, whether it's okay. occupied or not. So, yeah. a lot of there's a, unfortunately a lot of people that don't follow that. But right. um, as long as you steer clear, they're totally fine with you being out there for the most part. Yep. Um, and yeah, a lot of them are friendly. Uh, it being so sparse where I hunt, I, I haven't run into a lot of sure. landowners, but the ones I have are very friendly. Yeah. What is your take on like when you're out, do you see a lot of other bird hunters and okay, so you're shaking your head no. So generally you don't see a lot of other bird hunters. On a really good Merns year, when the game and fish um you know, puts it out there that it's gonna be a great year for Merns, it's it's almost like the orange army that shows up in South Dakota. Really? The three years I've been here, we haven't had a, a really good year. Last year was pretty good. Okay. Um this year's terrible. There I I've only I've only out of the 20 or 30 merns and I'm only shooting one out of a bigger covey and then leaving. I don't chase singles, but I, I've only shot maybe 30 this year. Um, and only two of them have been young of the year birds. So, um, the, they, ba- most people got the memo and, uh, decided to leave them alone for the year. I, I still hunt them more for dog work just, you know, to find yeah. them. And yep. just for the dog, I'll shoot one of a, out of a covey that's big enough. Um, but, I, I rarely see other hunters, and if I do, they're usually deer hunters because we our our rut is right now, so they're out now. Yeah. Okay. And I feel like, and and it sounds like you've obviously got more up to date report, obviously in the field experience too. But I I felt like wasn't weren't people kind of I mean maybe it's just optimism, but weren't they thinking it was going to be a pretty good year for quail? 
So yes, okay. the desert quail. Okay. So okay. desert quail uh, gambles specifically require winter and early spring rains to grow the winter annuals for chick survival, yeah. um, which we have had two really good years of that. And it came a little late this year, but it's looking like we might have a third really good year. Okay. Um, scaled quail are kind of a mix between winter and summer rains, um, but uh, I met a guy who showed me some scaled quail spots that are reminiscent of the good old days back in New Mexico when I used to hunt them with, you know, 50, 75, 100 bird coveys. Wow. And most of the ones I shot of scaled quail this year were young of the year, and same with gambles. They just have been booming the past couple of years. Merns, since they hatch so late, uh, or, yeah, they hatch so late, gambles will start, you know, nesting in February now, or okay. well, maybe a little bit later in the month. Sure. But the, the merns, like I said, don't nest until very late summer, early fall. So they require the monsoon, mm. which is in the summer, uh, which the past two years and probably before that have been pretty dismal um and they just did not have the chick survival this year without 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 that so it was a really good year for gambles pretty good year for scaled but just uh i i i talked to an old timer that I, i did see out and he said he's been coming to arizona since 91 and this is the worst year he's ever seen wow for merns for merns yep got it we have not talked about bird dogs. Let's before we uh, before we cut this one off. Let's get up to speed a little bit on your dogs. And I know you had a pup this year that I wanted to wanted to talk yeah. to you about. But growing up, it was short hairs, right? Growing up, it was okay. short hairs. Yep. And my dad still got the short hairs. Yep. Yeah. Um, and they're great dogs. Um, I have no issues with them. I love short hairs. But I had a family friend um, who used to work for quail forever that had a vishla and this was back when they were rare like yep. it was hard to find a vishla but i i fell in love with that dog watching it work and you know it's on off switch and it's they call them velcro vishlas because they just you know they come right up to you and just <laughs> stick it to you yep. um so she helped me find my first one 13 years ago and um unfortunately he's not doing too well um he we've still got him but probably not for long yeah he was you know, people, you hear the old-timers talk about your your 100-year dogs or the dogs of your lifetime. Yeah, one dog I, of your life, yeah. yeah. I, I, I wish I would have realized my first dog probably w- was that. So I, I got him 13 years ago. I trained him myself just, you know, when I had the time and resources and didn't really know what I was doing. So despite that, he um, ended up being a really, really good dog. Against and all then, odds. Against <laughs> all odds. Um, and, uh, and then... Uh, he retired so he had a leg injury um when he was like four um and uh, unfortunately he got hit by a truck and shattered his leg and you know the nerve and the artery to that leg and and they said he probably wouldn't hunt again they rebuilt it and um he he was out six months later shooting or getting limits of pheasants so um he retired a little bit earlier than I think he would have because of some arthritis. And, yeah. uh, and so I waited a little too long to get the second dog, which was another Vishla, but he's, he's, he's in, he's coming into his prime now. He's really got those Merns figured out. Um, and then this, this year, um, I wanted to mix it up a little bit and get a l- little bit more range. Um, and so I, I've always had my eye on, on a pointer mm-hmm. and I got one this year out of Michigan and, uh, she is 
eight months old. I can't remember. She's the same. She was born the day my son was, and I can't even remember how old he is. <laughs> um, she, she's been out with me every hunt this year. And, you know, early on and even until this past week, she, you know, running with her head up, not using her nose, just not really realizing what's going on. And then this past week, she found her first covey of Mern's quail, kind of kept going back to it, trying to figure out what that smell was, and then busted them. And then um, she, the next covey she pointed. Cool. So, yeah. So she's, I wish season was a little bit longer. I'll probably, unfortunately, there's not a lot of uh, preserves or or people who raise quail for training around here, but I'll probably try to find a way to get her out while it's still cool. Yeah. Build that a little more. Um, You said Michigan, was was it high five kennels or what, where is she out of? Yeah, Legacy K kennels. Legacy K, Um, okay. Yeah. So, um. Oh, I'm pretty sure I know. I think I know a couple guys that have dogs out of that kennel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a they had a big litter and a lot of um, a lot of people got them and and I I sent her a report the breeder and and uh, she she said she's only gotten awesome reports from from this litter so if I if I ask you if your dog was born on May 21st does that sound right yeah <laughs> I think you have a litter mate to uh, a guy that well Kellen Crow he was yep. in, uh, he was yep. interview here yeah okay. him and, and Ryan Potter and, and his buddy Adam yep. Wilson all those yep. you guys all have pups out of the same that's crazy yep okay. yep we do so it's it's, it's been interesting kind of watching and comparing you know my dog to their dog yeah and, and the yep. size and just the coloration and um what well, that's a small there. world that's crazy I, I yeah. know I mean I've never. I, I, I've met Kellen in person. I've never met the other guys in person, but I just, I know the names and I mean, it's one litter of puppies and now I've got four of them tracked down, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, yeah. my pup. Well, and the, the Upland community is so small. Go ahead. Oh, I was just, I was just going to say the Upland community is so small that, you know, if you're on Facebook in any of the groups, you, yes. the, those are a lot of the guys that are, are more active. So. Yeah. Yeah. And my pup Rose was, she was born May 22nd. I was remember she was born the day after Kellen's pup. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's what you and I were talking last week. We both have basically eight month old pups and yep. uh, first, first wild bird season under the belts and we're on to the next one. Yep. Start the real training now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what do you have a, do you have any goals or things you want to accomplish with that puppy over the off season? Um, yeah, I want to, so she she's actually really just naturally staunch on point. She yep. um and one one issue here, especially with the desert quail, you know, there's no cover, so they just run. And and one issue I ran into with uh, my my middle vishla um, is not sight pointing, and you know, seeing them run and chase them down. So I had to break them of that. Um, so, but she she sight <laughs> when I was had her on um, pigeons earlier this year. Um, you know, one kind of flushed early, and but only went. 20 30 40 yards and sat back down and i was like oh great here we go she's gonna go catch it and uh she she went over the ridge saw it and locked up just like that so um i want i want to keep her keep her going in that direction and uh get her as many bird contacts i'll keep going down probably to mern's country for uh, up until it gets too hot since they don't nest until later i'm not worried about messing with them um and just get her as many bird contacts as possible cool other than other than obviously the quail keeping you busy and some of your probably your you know your home turf stuff your pheasant and hunting in Missouri Nebraska are there any hunts that you're dying to get out there and try get your dogs on mountain quail okay yeah that's kind of my that's the last one I need yeah um 
and I'm I'm not one to chase these slams or anything, but I I I love quail. So yeah. um and they're such pretty birds. Yeah. Uh and I, I, I've been I've been in contact with several people that hunt them regularly and they all kind of said, eh, with the fires and and yeah. there's kind of a poor hatch for them as well. So um I decided to leave them alone for this year. Hopefully yeah. next year. Cool. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. It was uh, some great information shared. Good talking taxidermy and quail hunt a little bit. If folks are curious, they got questions about taxidermy, want to get in touch with you, where should they go? Um, Facebook. So okay. uh, page is called White Winged Artistry. Winged as in birds with wings. So white, my last name, W-H-I-T-E, winged artistry. Um, and uh, you can contact me through there or give me a call or text. My phone number is 573 291 seven six eight two if you have any questions want to talk or even talk about arizona quail um or coming down to hunt i'm always happy to take people so cool all right man i'll i'll throw some of those links in the show notes and we'll let people look you up if they want to uh for now appreciate the time thanks for talking to me and the listeners on the project open podcast man absolutely thanks so much for having me all right you yeah, have a good one tony you too take See care you. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode of the show. A quick reminder that the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA, Electronic Shooters Protection, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.